Chapter 14 of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Casey E. Kennard. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter 14 An Empress and Her Favorites. Catherine II of Russia. When Sophie Augusta Frederica of Anhalt Zerbst was romping on the ramparts or in the streets of Stettin with Berger's children for playmates, he would have been a bold prophet who would have predicted that one day she would be the most splendid figure among Europe's sovereigns, the only great man in Europe, according to Voltaire, an angel before whom all men should be silent, and that while dazzling Europe by her statesmanship and learning, she would afford more material for scandal than any woman, except perhaps Christina of Sweden, who ever wore a crown. There is much, it is true, to be said in extenuation of the weakness that has left such a stain on the memory of Catherine II of Russia. Equipped far beyond most women with the beauty and charms that fascinate men, and craving more than most of her sex the love of man, she was mated when little more than a child to the most degenerate prince in all Europe. The Grand Duke Peter, heir to the Russian throne, who at sixteen took to wife the girl princess of Anhalt Zerbst, was already an expert in almost every vice. Imbecile in mind, he found his chief pleasure in the company of the most degraded. He rarely went to bed sober. In fact, his bride's first sight of him was when he was drunk, at the age of ten. He was, too, a liar and a coward, vicious and violent, pale, sickly, and uncomely, a crooked soul in a prematurely ravaged body. Such was the Grand Duke Peter to whom the high-spirited, beautiful Princess Sophie, thenceforth to be known as Catherine, was tied for life one day in the year 1744 a youth the very sight of whom repelled her, while his vices filled her with loathing. Add to this revolting union the fact that she found herself under the despotic rule of the Empress Elizabeth, who made no concealment of her hatred and jealousy of the fair young princess, surrounded her with spies and treated her as a rebellious child, to be checked and bullied at every turn, and it is not difficult to understand the spirit of recklessness and defiance that was soon roused in Catherine's breast. There was at the Russian court no lack of temptation to indulge this spirit of revolt to the fool. The young German beauty, mated to worse than a clown, soon had her court of admirers to pour flatteries into her dainty ears, and she would perhaps have been less than a woman if she had not eagerly drunk them in. She had no need of anyone to tell her that she was fair. "'I know I am beautiful as the day,' she once exclaimed, as she looked at her mirrored reflection in her first ball finery at St. Petersburg, with a red rose in her glorious hair. And the mirror told no flattering tale. See the picture Poniatowski, one of her earliest and most ardent slaves, paints of the young Grand Duchess. With her black hair she has a dazzling whiteness of skin, a vivid color, large blue eyes prominent and eloquent, black and long eyebrows, a Greek nose, a mouth that looked made for kissing, 
a slight, rather tall figure, a carriage that was lively yet full of nobility, a pleasing voice and a laugh as merry as the humour through which she could pass with ease from the most playful and childish amusements to the most fatiguing mathematical calculations. With the brain, even in those early years, of a clever man, she was essentially a woman with all a woman's passion for the admiration and love of men. And one cannot wonder, however much one may deplore, that while her imbecile husband was guzzling with common soldiers, or playing with his toys and tin cannon in bed, vacuous smiles on his face, his beautiful bride should find her own pleasures in the homage of a Soltikoff, a Poignatowski, an Orloff, or any other of the legion of lovers who in quick succession took her fancy. The first among her admirers to capture her fancy was Sergius Soltikoff, her chamberlain, high-born, beautiful as the day, polished courtier, supple-tongued wooer, to whom the Grand Duchess gave the heart her husband spurned. But Soltikoff's reign was short. The fickle princess, ever seeking fresh conquests, wearied of him as of all her lovers in turn, and his place was taken within a year by Stanislas Poniatowski, a fascinating young Pole, who returned to St. Petersburg with the reputation of gallantry won in almost every court of Europe. Poniatowski had not perhaps the physical perfections of his dethroned predecessor, but he had the well-stored brain that made an even more potent appeal to Catherine. He could talk like an angel on every subject that appealed to her, from art to philosophy, and he had, moreover, a magnetic charm of manner which few women could resist. Such a lover was indeed after her heart, for he brought romance and adventure to his wooing, and whether he found his way to her boudoir disguised as a lady's tailor, or as one of the Grand Duke's musicians, or made open love to her under the very nose of her courtiers, he played his role of lover to admiration. Once Peter, in jealous mood, threatened to run his rival through with his sword, and in his rage went into his wife's bedroom and pulled her out of bed without leaving her time to dress. An hour later his anger had changed to an amused complacence, and he was supping with the culprits, and with boisterous laughter was drinking their healths. When at last a political storm drove Poignatowski from Russia, Catherine, who never forgot a banished lover, secured for him the crown of Poland. Thus the favorites come and go, each supreme for a time, each inevitably packed off to give place to a successor. With Poniatowski away in Poland, Catherine cast her eyes round her court to find a third favorite, and her choice was soon made. For of all her army of admirers, there was one who fully satisfied her ideal of handsome manhood. Of the five Orloff brothers, each a Goliath in stature and a Hercules in strength, the handsomest was Gregory, the giant with the face of an angel. Towering head and shoulders over most of his fellow courtiers, with knotted muscles which could fell an ox or crush a horseshoe with the closing of a hand, Gregory Orloff was reputed the bravest man in Russia, as he was the idol of his soldiers. 
he was also a notorious gambler and drinker and the hero of countless love adventures no greater contrast could be possible than between this daredevil son of Anak and the cultured, almost feminine Poignatowski. But Catherine loved, above all things, variety, and here it was in startling abundance. Nor was her new lover any the less desirable because he was some years younger than herself, or that his grandfather had been a common soldier in the army of Peter the Great. And Gregory Orloff proved himself as bold in wooing as he was brave in war. For him there was no stealing up back stairs, no masquerading in disguises. He was the elect favorite of the future Empress of Russia, and all the world should know it. He was inseparable from his mistress, and paid his court to her under the eyes of her husband, while Catherine, thus emboldened, made as little concealment of her partiality. But troublous days were coming to break the idol of their love. The Empress Elizabeth, as was inevitable, at last drank herself to death, and her nephew Peter, now a besotted imbecile of thirty-four, put on the imperial robes, and was free to indulge his madness without restraint. The first use he made of his freedom was to subject his wife to every insult and humiliation his debased brain could suggest. He flaunted his amours and vices before her, taunted her in public with her own indiscretions, and shouted in his cups that he would divorce her. Not content with these outrages on his empress, he lost no opportunity of disgusting his subjects and driving his soldiers to the verge of mutiny. Such an intolerable state of things could only have one issue. The emperor was undoubtedly mad the emperor must go. Over the coup d'etat which followed we must pass hurriedly. The conspiracy of Catherine and the Orloffs, the eager response of the army which flocked to the empress, kissing me, embracing my hands, my feet, my dress, and calling me their savior. The marching of the insurgent troops to Oranienbaum, with Catherine astride on horseback at their head, and Peter's craven submission, when he crawled on his knees to his wife, with whimpering and tears, begging her to allow him to keep his mistress, his dog, his negro, and his violin. The emperor was safe behind barred doors at Mopsa. Catherine was now empress in fact as well as name. Three weeks later Peter was dead. Was he done to death by Catherine's orders? To this day none can say with certainty. The story of this tragedy, as told by Castera, makes gruesome reading. One day Alexis Orloff and Teploff appeared at Mopsa to announce to the deposed sovereign his approaching deliverance, and to ask a dinner of him. Glasses and brandy were ordered, and while Teploff was amusing the Tsar, Orloff filled the glasses, adding poison to one of them. The Tsar, suspecting no harm, took the poison and swallowed it. He was soon seized with agonizing pains. He screamed aloud for milk, but the two monsters again presented poison to him and forced him to take it. When the Tsar's valet bravely interposed, he was hurled from the room. In the midst of the tumult there entered Prince Baratinsky, who commanded the guard. Orloff, who had already thrown down the Tsar, 
pressed upon his chest with his own knees, holding him fast at the same time by the throat. Baratinsky and Teploff then passed a table napkin with the sliding knot round his neck, and the murderers accomplished the work of death by strangling him. Such is the story as it has come down to us, and as it was believed in Russia at the time. That Gregory Orloff was innocent of a crime in which his own brother played a leading part is as little to be credited as that Catherine herself was in ignorance of the design on her husband's life. But however this may be, we are told that when the news of her husband's death was brought to the Empress at a banquet, she was to all appearance overcome with horror and grief. She left the table with streaming eyes and spent the next few days in unapproachable solitude in her rooms. Thus at last Catherine was free both from the tyranny of Elizabeth and from the brutality of her bestial husband. She was sole sovereign of all the Russias, at liberty to indulge any caprice that entered her versatile brain. That her subjects, almost to a man, regarded her with horror as her husband's murderer, that this detestation was shared by the army that had put her on the throne, and by the nobles who had been her slaves, troubled her little. She was mistress of her fate, and strong enough, as indeed she proved, to hold with a firm grasp the scepter she had won. High as Gregory Orloff had stood in her favor before she came to her crown, his position was now more splendid and secure. She showered her favors on him with prodigal hand. Lands and jewels and gold were squandered on her first favorite, the official designation she invented for him, and he wore on his broad chest her miniature in a blazing oval of diamonds, the crowning mark of her approval and to his brothers she was almost equally generous, for in a few years of her ascendancy the Orloffs were enriched by vast estates on which forty-five thousand serfs toiled, by palaces, and by gold to the amount of seventeen million roubles. Such it was to be in the good books of Catherine II, Empress of Russia. With riches and power Gregory's ambition grew until he dreamt of sitting on the throne itself by Catherine's side, and in her foolish infatuation even this prize might have been his, had not wiser counsels come to her rescue. "'The Empress,' said Panin to her, "'can do what she likes, but Madame Orloff can never be Empress of Russia.' And thus Gregory's greatest ambition was happily nipped in the bud." The man who had played his cards with such skill and discretion in the early days of his love-making had now, his head swollen by pride and power, grown reckless. If he could not be emperor in name, he would at least wield the scepter. The woman to whom he owed all was, he thought, a puppet in his hands, as ready to do his bidding as any of his minions. But through all her dallying Catherine's smiles masked an iron will. In heart she was a woman, in brain and will-power a man, and Orloff, like many another favorite, was to learn the lesson to his cost. The time came when she could no longer tolerate his airs and assumptions. There was only one empress, but lovers were plentiful, and she already had an eye on his successor. And thus it was that one day the swollen Orloff was sent on a diplomatic mission to arrange peace between Russia and Turkey. 
When she bade him good-bye she called him her angel of peace, but she knew that it was her angel's farewell to his paradise. How the ambassador, instead of making peace, stirred up the embers of war into fresh flame is a matter of history. But he was not long left to work such mad mischief. While he was swaggering at a yashi fate, in a costume ablaze with diamonds worth a million roubles, news came to him of a good-looking young lieutenant who was not only installed in his place by Catherine's side, but was actually occupying his own apartments. Within an hour he was racing back to St. Petersburg, resting neither night nor day till he had covered the thousand leagues that separated him from the capital. Before, however, his sweating horses could enter it, he was stopped by Catherine's emissaries and ordered to repair to the imperial palace at Gatshina. And then he realized that his son had indeed come to its setting. His honors were soon stripped from him, and although he was allowed to keep his lands, his gold and jewels, the spoils of Cupid, the diamond-framed miniature, was taken away to adorn the breast of his successor, the lieutenant. Under this cloud of disfavor, Orloff conducted himself with such resignation, none knew better than he how futile it was to fight, that Catherine, before many months had passed, not only recalled him to court, but secured for him a princedom of the Holy Empire. As for Prince Gregory, she said amiably, he is free to go or stay, to hunt, to drink, or to gamble. I intend to live according to my own pleasure, and in entire independence. After a tragically brief wedded life with a beautiful girl-cousin, who died of consumption, Orloff returned to St. Petersburg to spend the last few months of his life, broken-hearted and mad, and to his last hour his clouded brain was tortured with visions of the avenging shade of the murdered Peter. End of chapter 14 Recording by Casey E. Kennard